So, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast, and I'm with my friend and co-editor, none other than Professor Justin Lewis. We're in Penarth. Justin, where is Penarth, apart from Penarth. where we are? Penarth is right next to Cardiff, um, Cardiff University being the uh, my place of work, and uh, Penarth is on the seafront, uh, right next to the city. In fact, we've got a spectacular view from your living room window. Yeah, we're Very beautiful. Looking over the night sky of Cardiff Bay and yeah. mountains behind. Now, Justin, last time I spoke to you, you were running the journalism, media, communication, cultural studies bit there, but you've lurched, sorry, leapt successfully back into print at the same time as you've been occupying this managerial role. You've now moved on in the managerial role, as I understand. But, um, in fact, throughout your time there, you were immensely productive uh, in a scholarly sense. Now, there's a lead in, if ever there was one, and a long sentence and a subject and a predicate that weep for one another. But tell us about the book. What's it called? The book is called... uh, The book probably has the wrong title. The title is Beyond Consumer Capitalism, uh, colon, um, Media and the Limits to Imagination. Uh, what I would subsequently think it should have been called is thinking beyond consumer capitalism, question mark, because that's what it's about. It's about our the degree to which we are able to uh, think about other forms of human progress, other ways of organising society, economy, or politics, outside the constraints of consumer capitalism. And the book uh, looks at some of the reasons why, even though this might be quite a good thing to do, uh, we actually spend very little time doing it. Can you define some terms for us? Can you tell us, I mean, I know this may sound very obvious, but I'm hoping that you'll bear with me. Consumer capitalism and consumer capitalism. Yes. I mean, I, I use the phrase, um, not in, I'm, you know, I don't, there's, I'm not a, a slave to any particular uh, model or definition here. I mean, I use the phrase really to refer to a form of mid to late capitalism, which is dominated and by and based upon high levels of consumer spending uh, and requires high levels of consumer spending uh, in order for its levels levels of production to, to continue to continue to grow, um, and to also indicate a, a cultural system. Um, so one of the features of, of consumer capitalism is indeed the way in which it promotes and relies upon certain the centrality of consumption mm-hmm. as, as something that dominates the way we look at the world, that dominates the way things are organised. You know, the, the, the idea that we have to go and consume things is everywhere. Um, so for me, it's, it's a term that's useful in the sense it identifies a particular form of capitalism that we associate very much with our contemporary age. Mm. And so that would be, for instance, the model of the United States in the post-war period? Very much so. Uh, and of other countries like Britain and, and other parts of Europe, which were, um, you know, usually a few years behind the United States in terms of levels of consumption, uh, levels of GDP and so forth, but followed very much the same kind of trajectory, albeit with a little less enthusiastically at times. So, you know, in the US... Uh, you have a you know, unadulterated model of, of consumerism that is at the heart of all its creative industries in a way that you don't necessarily in the UK all the time, although the UK is busy catching up. But um, the US is the kind of archetypal mm. model of consumer capitalism. It's where it's where the sort of people that began to think about the concept of consumer capitalism first did so, really, in the 1950s, uh, almost famously did so. Um, people like Vance Packard, who wrote about advertising. And the Hidden like Persuaders. Hidden on. Persuaders. He actually wrote a series of books. He wrote yeah. a book called Grossmanship, which was all about, um, which are not as well known. His book on advertising is his best known. It's not a, it's not a great book, but it's, it's a sort of, it's a recognition for me of a paradigm shift. What he was, and what other people in the 1950s were observing was a shift towards a different way of organising society in which consumerism had become central to the way things were organised and central to the survival of capitalism as a system in a way that was different um, before, before. That, before and that time. It's also the emergence of new 
categories of consumer, isn't it? As well as targeting of consumers and education of consumers, this is really the moment of the invention of the teenager and the relative affluence of teenagers in the countries you're mentioning in the post-Second World War yeah, period. Yeah, of course you have crucial. this time, you know, the, yeah, the baby boom, of course, happens at the same time. Right. So you suddenly get um, a number of things going on at the same time. So you get young people more often than ever before, with more disposable income than ever before, and with more leisure time than ever before. Um, and hence, you have the perfect environment for the growth of something like the pop music industry, which grows uh, at an extraordinary rate, really, over the following dec two decades from that point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting... I mean, the 1950s... I mean, I, one of the things that I did when I wrote the book was to read a lot of work that was done around that time. Mm. because Just because, it, in some ways, what was interesting for me was that people like Galbraith, the economists, like Vance Bacar, like others, you, you really felt a sense that they were witnessing the start of something new in a way that now we don't. So, you know, other people have commented on this, but when Galbraith wrote The Affluent Society, you, you can't imagine anybody writing a book now called The Affluent Society, even though we are many times more affluent than we were when Galbraith wrote it. Um, but you know, the idea that uh, this was, we'd reached a point where we had what we needed to be happy and fulfilled was the, the premise of, of Galbraith's book. Uh, you know, and that was at a time that we would regard now as austere, looking back. Um, but the fact that such a book could be written then and couldn't mm -hmm. be written now, I think is quite interesting because it suggests that these were people who saw something as it was changing. Now we're so immersed in it that we don't see it anymore. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I found that interesting reading through the, the, the work at that time from, from that point of view. I guess I can remember coming across the expression consumer-led recovery first in the mid-1970s. But demand management, i.e. trying to ensure that there is lots of demand, is in fact an old Keynesian strategy. It's just oh, not yes. necessarily demand on the part of consumers. It's often demand on the part of producers, i.e. big corporations needing inventory, needing workers, needing to spend money on things in order to continue to produce yeah. for one another, not just for the punter at home. The punter at home has become responsible for the economy within this notion of the consumer-led recovery, and even for people who are supply-side rather than demand-side people, is frequently invoked in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, I mean, it's, it's also, I mean, one of the things that is always interesting when you look back uh, is to think about the paths not chosen by right. a system. I mean, so for example, there was a moment, I mean, you know, clearly in the 1950s and before that time, in the 1920s even, you know, there were a lot of people writing uh, at the time who, you know, way back in the 1920s, advertisers were lamenting how difficult it was to get people to buy new things because there was so much. You know, this was such an age of plenty back in the 1920s. You know, how could they get, you know, there was no room for another, you know, new toothpaste or another shampoo. So they, they, they were seeing this as a real problem, that this idea that they reached saturation point, which seems ludicrous now. Um, but there was a, clearly a problem for capitalism, not in production. Capitalism has always been very good at production, but it increasingly became a problem of consumption, that they needed, mm. to, you needed to create demand to keep the system going. But... At that moment, you could have seen a, a kind of more benign version of consumer capitalism that looked around the world and said, OK, the way we'll crack this is clearly in the wealthy West, people already have a lot of stuff. So what we'll do is direct our focus and our energies on those parts of the world where people don't have stuff. I mean, very much the... I mean, you, know, you will remember the Brandt report. Mm -hmm. um, this is Willy Brandt, who had been a German chancellor, chancellor and a yeah. famous anti-Nazi during the war. And, and you know, a, a, a social democrat who, who, whose report was essentially argued that, really, essentially argued yeah. that for, for the, it was a kind of benign form of consumer By the way, I am younger than Justin, so when he says, <laughs> you'll remember this. Yes. By um, seven, you, months. <laughs> seven months. I did try to claim it was five years last year, but you quickly wiped the floor with me over yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, yeah. yes, what Brandt was saying in this report, which is what, about 35 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he essentially was saying that, you know, one of the options was that uh, in order to keep the whole system going, that, that what capital should do is direct its energies on consumption in the poorer parts of the world. Mm. So in other words, you get 
uh, you bring up poorer nations so they consume more rather than focus your energies on the rich parts of the world. But of course, exactly the opposite happened, which is consumer capitalism spends all its energies not in trying to equip people who didn't have very much, but in trying to persuade people who already had a lot to buy still more and to ignore, actually, everybody else. Um, pretty much. I mean, that's the dominant model. And, and, and despite the growth of, of countries like India and China, that's still the way it, it's organised and that the growth of developing nations has happened in spite of that model. Uh, so, yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting moment. That's the way things could have gone. But essentially the growth of consumer capitalism in the second half of the 20th century was predicated on its ability to persuade people in wealthy countries to become wealthier still and to buy still more stuff. Now, I agree with that, although what's happened since, of course, is that because that required a new division of labour that undercut the working class in the global north, it's seen the eventual rise of expectations in terms of wages and salaries in the global south amongst the producers of such goods to the point where there's now a middle class emergent there. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments made in favour of the model that you're criticising is to say, well, actually, it's led to an expanded global middle class like never before as a consequence of the people who've taken, in inverted commas, the offshore jobs and the entrepreneurs or corporate chiefs or state corrupt people who have piggybacked on all of that and now represent very powerful, consumptive, but also political groups and that are not small in number. Yeah, I, I mean, that's an argument and, and that it, it has some merit. I, I, it also has some flaws, I think. Um, you know, a few points. One, uh, you know, one problem with that argument is how long it took for it to happen. I mean, if the model is constructed to do that, it took you know, a good 50 years to do it. Um, you know, what's conspicuous is how few countries in the poorer parts of the world have actually experienced that. Um, the second is that the countries that, that are most clearly experiencing it have, have uh, you know, all have certain things in common. They all, have, on the whole, have very large populations, um, which suggests that just as the Industrial Revolution, if you look at the Industrial Revolution in Britain, it, it, you know, one of the, the, the main reasons why it happened was because of extraordinary population growth that, that created demand, and the same thing happened in those countries as well. So they had all sorts of reasons why they were always going to grow eventually mm -hmm. that probably had nothing to do with the shift of labour around the world. Indeed, the pressures of the shift of labour around the world has been many people would argue, a race to the bottom where mm. countries compete to have the worst labour laws uh, and offer their labour at the cheapest price in order to attract capital investment. Uh, so it doesn't, in fact, far from driving wages up in those countries, it actually keeps them low. So I, I'm not convinced that, that global capitalism you know, in any way can claim that as a success story. Mm. I mean, they've mm -hmm. come very, very late to the party. And, and they've arrived for, I think, complicated reasons that don't have much to do with, if you like, the largesse of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good, good points all. So in terms of the G word, growth, I wonder if you could talk us through that a bit. You're a very committed environmentalist. Uh, you've published a great deal on related topics. One of the issues I imagine you encounter from critics is this is all very well, but economies such as the one in which you survive and thrive are predicated on growth and for technical reasons have to be. It's a, that's a very strong argument. And, uh, but it, you know, the, the book begins very much with that argument and uh, looks at the reasons why that argument is becoming increasingly threadbare. I mean, I think there are, there are clearly three major problems now with a model based on infinite growth, which is the model. I mean, this is a model with, with very limited imagination that can never imagine a time, you know, 5,000 years into the future even, when it will not be necessary for people to have more things. Mm. So it can only ever imagine consumers wanting more and more and more into infinity. So there's no point. It cannot imagine a point where we have enough stuff which you know, is in many ways a ludicrous notion that, that takes no account of psychology or you know, the way we live our lives or the fact that we have quite a short space of time on this earth to buy things and to enjoy them. 
Um, so I think that there are, I mean, there are three basic flaws with it as well, apart from its, its own limited imagination. One is the environmental critique, which is quite well known now, that uh, the strain on resources uh, and the consequences of climate change on using resources at a particular rate um, of a pattern of infinite growth are hugely problematic. So uh, various people have calculated that it's going to be very, very tough for us to meet the kinds of targets we need for greenhouse gas emissions, even if we stop growing now. But if we factor in levels of economic growth, those targets look increasingly unrealistic. So, so the model is actually a risk to the whole society itself because of catastrophic climate change and its likelihood of pushing us towards that abyss, if you like. That's the best known critique. I mean, the, the two other critiques that are, uh, are less well known, but, but increasingly compelling, I think in terms of research, uh, one is the quality of life critique that increasing amount of evidence now shows that in the developed world, there is now no connection at all between GDP, GDP growth and quality of life. So uh, even though our gross domestic product may grow, it will have no impact at all on our health or our happiness. Um, the, the link between those two things, there is a link, uh, but past a certain level of GDP, all the evidence suggests the link falls away. GDP, by the way, gross domestic yeah. product. Um, so, you know, the, while individually we may be happy if we have more money in a society, collectively, if we all get richer, we're actually now happier. Um, it's the, uh, so that's clearly a huge problem. So if GDP growth doesn't produce increases in our health or quality of life, why are we doing it? Uh, it I mean, it's, it's one of the questions of our century, I think. The third problem... Uh, is, is, is an economic problem, and it's to do with the clash between time and money, uh, in that, I mean, I mentioned before, the model is predicated on a notion of infinite growth, that we growth, you have to have growth exponentially. And what it assumes, therefore, is a continued growth in consumption, which means we continually have to buy more and more things. The problem with that model is that our time on Earth is not growing exponentially. In fact, it's come to a grinding halt in two senses. One, we work just as long as we have you know, we basically, the, the, the growth in our leisure time has stopped increasing a few decades ago. So we still have no more leisure time than we did when we had far less stuff. And we're not really living any longer. Um, you know, the, we, there were major increases in our life expectancy, but that's also coming to a, uh, that's slowing down and coming towards to a halt. Which means we only have a limited amount of time to buy things, to choose them and to enjoy them. And what all the evidence suggests is that we're now reaching a point where the proliferation of, of commodities has become so excessive that choice is now increasingly burdensome on our time, that we simply don't have the time to, to do those kinds of things. I mean, one of the, the strange ironies right now in the UK is that we have a government busy urging people that they should switch energy supplier, and if they did, uh, they would save money. Now, they're quite right about that. If we switch energy, energy supply, we probably could save money, especially if we kept doing it periodically every six months. But people aren't doing it. I mean, the number of people switching energy supplies is a, is a very you know, clear minority, even though economically in our rational self-interest, as good consumers in a capitalist system, we should be doing that. But basically what we're saying is we don't have the time. I'm sorry, I'm not going to spend my precious free time every few months researching where I'm going to get the best deal for my energy. I'd rather spend, you know, I might lose money, but actually I'd rather spend my time doing something else. And if you apply that to all the other choices you have to make in a consumer society, I mean, we went to our local brand of, of Tesco's uh, in Cardiff. Which is a big supermarket yeah. chain. The biggest in the UK. Uh, and it's got a raft of different kinds of store, but it's open about 18 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. And with a quite a wide array of yeah. foodstuffs. Yeah, wide array of foodstuffs. And we went in and we simply counted the number of different types of shampoos and conditioner that were available on one particular day in that shop. Uh, and we found 181. Now, if you think about from that from the point of view of the rational consumer, the rational consumer is a misnomer. You cannot be a rational consumer. You cannot go into a Tesco's and make a rational choice between 181 different varieties. To, to make any kind of rational decision would take months of research. Uh, it's simply not a good use of our time. So we have this ironic position that we're now in where, I mean, it's consumer capitalism to catch 22, that 
we have such a proliferation of commodities that we make the rational decision to give up being rational consumers. We can't be rational consumers anymore. To do so would require us to devote all our leisure time into making consumption choices. So the system has inbuilt mm. in it a contradiction between time and money. So as proliferation explodes, we don't have the time to deal with that proliferation anymore. And, and that is something mm. the economists mm. never mm. talk about. It's the opportunity cost of opportunity cost. Yeah. yeah. Opportunity cost being this concept of what is the problem for me in dedicating time and other resources to X? Well, it's going to be the lack of Y, which should I devote my energies to? It's actually problematizing the whole notion of opportunity cost. And even on capitalism's own terms, it doesn't work. So, uh, you know, there are various sort of people committed as anybody to the capitalist project who've done research that finds that when you give people a choice of 24 different jams to choose from, they get confused and go away. When you give them a choice of six, they're more likely to buy one because they can deal with that level of choice. Yeah. So we're clearly passing the level beyond which the system can, can really behave um, and uh, in a way that is rational, that leads to certain kinds of rational outcome. But would you be happier then if we were back in the days when the chief executive officer of General Motors says, what's good for General Motors is good for America and we have fewer choices that are masterminded by men in flannel suits. I'm not sure that's the other option. Uh, yeah. I'd like to think there are other choices here. Or, ah, choices. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. no, no, no. And again, I'm not suggesting that choice is not a good thing. I think that you know, there clearly is an optimum level. Yeah, no choice at all is also a bad thing. Right. But clearly there are different kinds of choices. I mean, so for example, you know, in, in, in Britain, um, one of the things that people talk a lot about is school choice, the idea that it's a good thing if parents and children have a choice of which schools they, their children can go to. Um, but actually, when you talk to most people, they don't really care about choice. What they want is a good local school. They don't want six you know, different schools to choose from. They just want one that's good locally. So that's the situation. Or a hospital. You don't want to choose. You, you, know, you break your leg. You don't want to spend you know, 20 minutes researching which is the best local hospital to go to to get your leg fixed. You just want to go to a local hospital that will be good. Um, so there is a degree to which services, you know, what we're looking for is, is things that work well, that we appreciate, that we have a good relationship with. Um, and there's also a sense to which sort of you know, choice creates rises in expectations that leads to disappointment. So there are all sorts of reasons why there is probably an optimum level of choice and we passed it. Um, so for all those reasons, the current model of consumer capitalism based on a model of infinite growth I think it's looking exciting to look extraordinarily threadbare and that, you know, if ever there was a time to look at the research and say, actually, maybe we should be saying, we've got a lot of stuff. Are there ways we could organise our economy, our politics, our society that would create, make us happier and healthier uh, and lead to forms of social progress? Because the current system isn't doing that. I mean, you cannot say that the current system is identified by social progress. It clearly isn't. It's more of the same. All it offers is status. You know, the therapy of the shopping mall, you know, it's not getting any better. It's, it's, it's as it was 10 years ago. The experience of that will never be better than it was. But if we think about this in terms of the Kantian critique from the 18th century at the beginnings of contemporary capitalism, some would argue, where for Kant, consumption is immature, and it's a self-imposed immaturity. Ever since that time, some of this critique has been regarded as very gendered because in many countries, in many ways, consumption is something that is done more by women than men, often on behalf of others, not necessarily themselves, but a lot of household consumption, increasingly in the United States, big ticket items are bought more by women than men. Cars, boats, computers, expensive domestic appliances and other things which used to be male decisions, are ceasing to be so much that way, at the same time as many of the supposed peccadilloes of femininity or fetishes of femininity are being transferred onto masculinity in terms of beauty products and so on. What about the position that says shopping is therapy, denouncing shopping is masculinist, and so on? Okay, I'm, a few things. I mean, firstly, just to clarify, I'm not denouncing shopping, nor am I denying that consumerism has its pleasures. It clearly it does. Um, yeah. You know, shopping can be fun. Um, there is pleasure to be had in the consumption of objects. I'm not in any way suggesting that that's yeah. not true. 
Um, all I'm suggesting is that it has its limits. In mm. other words, mm -hmm. you know, the amount of shopping we, we do now, doing more of it is not going to be more fun. Yeah. You know, the amount of consumption that we do now, doing more of it is not, it's not going to get much better. Um, so clearly, there are senses in which consumption can be can be fun, and, and, and acquiring things can be fun. But it, the fun we have from it, and the quality of life that we get from it, uh, you know, it doesn't improve uh, over time. In fact, we've uh, my, the research suggests that we've, we've reached that point where it doesn't get any better. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I guess I'm not saying consumption. You know, I'm not sort of being hair shirt here. I think that clearly there are things that are fun about this, and and. We shouldn't deny that, and I, you know, I take pleasure in, in lots of forms of consumption. Yeah. So I'm not saying that consumption is bad. Uh, I'm just saying that the pleasures of it don't improve uh, infinitely. I'm okay. saying that the pleasures are finite. On the on the gender aspect, I think actually men and women are both caught up in in a system that based on consumption. Even if women might do more of the consuming, um, both men and women are caught up in a system that requires them to earn the money to allow that to happen. Um, and to feel the pressure, for example, in negotiating about their work, that what's important is not to get more leisure time, but to maximise their income. So, you know, it used to be that trade unions would negotiate around two things. They would negotiate about decreasing the, the hours in the working week and increasing pay. Uh, now, one of those is completely gone. We know no, 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 nobody ever talks about that anymore. It's all just about increasing pay, i.e. the only thing that's going to improve our lives is having more money. Ironically, what the research shows is exactly the opposite, that the thing that would increase our quality of life would be to have more time, much more than having more money would. But So, so I think men and women are both caught up in that, They're both caught up in that system. So who, who does the actual consuming, I think, in some ways is an aspect of it, but I think it goes well beyond one. Now, you've mentioned the magic W word there, work and worker, and I wondered if I could ask you to tell us a little bit about the way in which focusing on choice and consumption tears people away from thinking about labour, and not just the labour of others, but the labour of themselves, because isn't that one of the impacts of being addressed, of being invoked all the time in our subject positions as consumers and not addressed as workers or fellow workers? Yeah, and, and there was, I mean, just, you know, this is a, a slight aside, but but I think it's relevant. I mean, one of the, uh, a study that was done uh, that looked at the BBC's coverage of business, um, commissioned by the BBC Trust, who are kind of pseudo watchdog on the BBC's output. Um, one of the things that they concluded was that what BBC's coverage of businesses talks a lot about business and talks a lot about consumers, mm. but it almost completely ignores uh, workers. Um, so, you know, we are addressed as consumers, uh, we're not addressed in our role as workers. And I should say, in the United States and in Britain, the labour beat on newspapers is essentially dead. Yeah. yeah. Having been, in our lifetimes, thriving. I know. I, I, I remember a time when, you know, people like the Glasgow Media Group produced reports that suggested that there was an imbalance between business mm. and unions yeah. and that business got a bigger share <laughs> of, of things than unions did. But, you know, you look back to that period now as a golden age of balance because at least there was some representation of trade unions that was quite significant. People knew who trade union leaders were. They were household names back then. Now, nobody has a clue who they are. They're never on. And, and study after study shows that trade unionists are completely absent from public discourse, whereas the voice of business grows with every passing decade. Um, there's more and more of it. So... Yeah. Uh, we have a huge imbalance in the discourse there. Uh, the other thing I, I suppose which is interesting for me is that one of the things that, I mean, I'm very interested in all the quality of life research and there's been a huge you know, growth in that research in the last couple of decades. But one of the things that's really striking is that uh, even though professionals uh, often do enjoy parts of their work, um, for most people actually work is not the most pleasurable part of the day. In fact, it's the least pleasurable part of the day. Uh, when asked, uh, various studies have looked at what people get pleasure from, and, and they mm. asked to rank all the things that happen in the course of their day, and the three least popular things that people do are their commute, well, least popular of all is the commute to work, second least popular is the commute home from work, and third least popular is being at work itself. So one of the things that this research would suggest, if we just did less of it, 
if we were able to negotiate to decrease the length of the working week, um, we'd all be a lot better off. And it actually goes back to your, your earlier question, which is uh, the model of growth. And, and one of the things that um, you know, far more sophisticated uh, people than me when it comes to thinking about economic matters, people like Tim Jackson, um, have, have thought about this in great depth. But how can you, how can you create a model uh, of a prosperous society without growth? Uh, and the immediate problem you hit is that we use growth as a way of, um, of dealing with the fact that you get efficiency gains through technology. So you get efficiency gains through technology. What that would normally do is create unemployment. But in order for that not to happen, you keep growing in order to create new jobs to fill the gap that you get through the efficiency gain. Um, but there is another option. Uh, and Tim Jackson and other people in the New Economics Foundation have talked a lot about this. Uh, and that is, actually, if you exchange the productivity gains for free time. So you said, actually, no, we're not going to carry on working 40 hours a week, even though we're producing as much uh, as we did for 45 hours a week, or whatever it is. Or we could work 35 and produce as much as we did when we were working uh, 40. Uh, what we tend to do now is carry on working the same number of hours every week. We just want more money for it. If instead we said, pay us the same, but we'll work less, the, the pressure on employment would decrease. You could share employment around much more. Um, and you could carry on doing that for quite a while and avoid any huge crunch that comes about through unemployment. Unemployment, I mean, unemployment is clearly a bad thing for people unemployed. It does lower people's quality of life in all kinds of ways for various different reasons. So, you, you know, it's not good to create lots of unemployment. But we need to think, my view is, about ways in which we can imagine prosperous societies that can live without permanent growth. Mm. Right. But we're not doing that. I mean, I, I guess my plea in the book, and I talk, um, the bulk of the book actually, is why we're not thinking about it. But um, my plea really is that we actually devote our imaginations in the 21st century to thinking about that. I mean, I don't pretend to have you know, all the answers or even many of them. But um, uh, what's clear is that we should devote our minds to thinking outside Asking this very limited framework that we're all stuck in at the moment. So let's focus on what's holding us back from doing so? Um, I mean, here we get into territory for me that is more familiar, and, and that is our, our media system. Um, and I think our media system, for me, limits our imaginations in three ways. I mean, I think it does it in lots of other ways too, but I focus on three ways in which it does. Very Trinitarian thinker. It is, uh, yeah. All things come in threes, or at least they do in the limits of my own imagination. Um, the first uh, I talk about in the book is uh, the growth of advertising. Um, I mean, advertising is our dominant cultural industry. Uh, global advertising uh, is 15 times bigger in economic terms than global film production um, in terms of the amount of money we spend on it. Uh, you know, it, 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 things like the film industry look positively you know, minuscule compared to the advertising industry. It sucks up the bulk of our creative energies and talents. Uh, not only is it the biggest cultural industry in its own right, it also dominates all the other cultural industries. So very little uh, of our cultural output, whether it's television or radio or newspapers or magazines or online or wherever it is, happens without being funded by advertising. It's absolutely everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It is the dominant form of discourse in our culture now. And... One of the questions that's rarely asked is, uh, what impact does that have on our imaginations? And one of the things that I suggest is that uh, we spend far too long thinking about advertising purely as a form of revenue. I mean, if you look at government reports about the role of advertising in broadcasting, uh, it's talked about almost exclusively as a form of revenue and nothing else. Uh, what, what is never discussed in those reports is the fact that it is the dominant genre on television. You know, there's more advertising. And by the way, most of the time, one of the dominant funders of it is governments. Uh, monumental amounts of advertising yeah. all yeah. over the world. So it is hugely Undertaken subsidized. by the state yeah. with extraordinary subsidies. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. Um, but, you know, I mean, what is our dominant you know, form of television? It's not sitcoms. It's not reality television. It's not drama. It's not sport. It is advertising. Um, yeah. 
And one of the things that, you know, advertising can do many things. It can tell many, many different stories. I'm not suggesting that advertising is completely one note. I mean, there are lots of creative people in advertising who can tell some extraordinarily complex stories in 30 seconds that are imaginative and witty and beguiling and aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. But, but it has a limit point, and its limit point is that one of the messages that's common to all advertising is that the only form of society we can imagine, the only form of satisfaction, the only form of pleasure, the only form of fulfilment that we can ever have is through consumption. Now, first of all, that's not true. But secondly, if we're bombarded with that message you know, countless times every day, to imagine a world in which that's not true, or that that's not the case, is very, very difficult because we're told it over and over and over again. So that, for me, is a major limit on our imagination. I mean, if we imagine for a moment, imagine a world where every advertiser on the planet was told that as of tomorrow, they don't have to sell anything anymore. They can produce you know, their images in a magazine or their 30-second spot on TV or whatever it is they're doing. They can tell any story they like about anything. The world would be transformed culturally if that happened. We would suddenly have you know, all kinds of different stories that might lead in all sorts of imaginative places. That would be a cultural transformation like no other that we can imagine. Uh, and what that potential transformation tells us is that we're stuck currently in a system where our dominant creative industry is limited to a very particular form of expression, a very particular form of discourse that is completely tied to consumer capitalism. I mean, it is, if you like, the propaganda wing, unwittingly and without design, of consumer capitalism. It's there, it, you know, it sells it. There's a very Not powerful, deliberately, but that's what it does. There's a very powerful set of discourses and institutions that in part is encapsulated within advertising and consumer capitalism, and in part is the most significant other to it. It's called religion. Spirituality. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that is, it's a really interesting point because, you know, one of the, you know, I'm, I am an atheist. Uh, I'm not a religious person. And yet one of the, one of the places where I find that the uh, kind of anti-consumerist discourse is perhaps best developed is, um, you know, in religious discourse. Uh, the idea that, you know, there is, you know, the pleasures are not all material. There are there are forms of fulfilment, if you like, often pleasures that, that are they would say spiritual. I mean, I would say uh, that you know those, those pleasures are not simply spiritual. There are in all sorts of places that you you get pleasures and fulfilment that are not through material consumption. But you're right; it is a place where that 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 discourse has been well developed. Um, but I don't think it relies. I don't think that a discourse that says that there are other forms of fulfilment outside consumption doesn't mean you have to go to church. I think that that point can be made equally by somebody uh, who has no particular religious belief. Um, you know, for me, you know, those forms of fulfillment can be found in lots of places that are outside material consumption. Could you give us some examples? Well, I, I, you know, I think, I think this is kind of something we, we all sort of know. Um, you know, if we think of the things that gives us pleasure, it's, you know, spending time with our friends, with our family, um, you know, that, that a phrase I, I, that a lot of people find uh, uh, rather uh, twee, but the, the phrase quality time, if you like, it, it's an interesting phrase because it suggests actually uh, a, a place where you get fulfillment outside of consumption uh, because you're spending it with people that you like or you love. Um, those things are, are very clearly associated with uh, things that are important to us that we value far more than we do, in fact, material consumption. You know, other things. I mean, you know, when you when you look at the quality of life research, it finds all sorts of things very strongly correlated with people's quality of life. So volunteering, people who volunteer and give their time to, you know, good causes, whatever they may be, are actually happier and more fulfilled than people that don't. Um, but if you like, it's almost kind of anti-consumption. You're giving your, your time away for nothing. Um, you know, going for a walk actually is very positively correlated uh, with you know, quality of life because it gives you time to contemplate things. It, it means that you often will live more in the present. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that are very strongly 
uh, connected with quality of life. And, and, and actually, most people do feel that. I mean, you, you ask people what's really important to them. You know, most people, not everybody, but most people will not say, you know, being able to buy lots of stuff as often as possible. They will say it's to do with human relationships. It's to do with, you know, experiences that you have. Uh, and it's not to say those aren't linked to consumption. You know, you and I are going to go out for a, a meal a little bit later. So we will be consuming. But, uh, you know, that's only part of the pleasure of the evening. The part that if we both just ate in, you know, on our own, um, you know, it would not be a, be a rather dull experience. <laughs> with you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the pleasure comes from, uh, from those kinds of relationships. So there's all sorts of ways. And advertisers know that. I mean, advertisers have known that for a long time. So consequently, they don't try and sell you things anymore based on the thing they're selling you. You know, you watch a car advertisement, it will never say buy this car because it has this feature or that feature. What it will tell you is buy this car because it is associated with being cool or happy or having high status or being respected or being valued. It's associated with a set of immaterial values and they're desperately trying to connect their product to. And that's mostly what advertising does now because what advertisers are desperately trying to do is connect the material goods they're trying to sell with the non-material world that they now actually brings us pleasure. So even advertising knows this, uh, it just has to pretend that it doesn't know this. I just did a consultancy for an agency that's producing a commercial for the upcoming Super Bowl, National Football League in the United States. I did this as a volunteer. I was not paid. This is for perhaps the biggest brand in the world. And the message that wanted to get across and will in its Super Bowl commercial is one of unity through difference and patriotism as exhibited in the orientation of this company. I decided that it was worth doing this, partly because I wasn't getting paid and partly because I thought there's something about focusing on cultural difference and not just in terms of the separateness of cultural difference, but the intermingling of cultural difference and the acceptance of that that makes this a legitimate thing to do. What would you have done? So what, you, you were offered this? Hmm. And I did it twice. I've done it twice for this commercial that's about to be shown. Uh, and I did it for free. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's a good question. I, I, I don't think I've ever done it for free. <laughs> for a start. Yeah, because you're not as fucking stupid as I am. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah and I, I, I think I, that would have been a difficult moral choice, I think. Uh, I've, I suppose one of the things that the more I've written about advertising, the more I've kind of read about advertising, uh, the more I, I must have been, I dislike advertising. Mm. So I think mm. I would have found it hard to do anything mm -hmm. complicit in that. Uh, yeah, that. Did you use the C word? <laughs> was that directed in some way at a person known universally as moi? <laughs> so, but yeah. Sorry, that's French for me, listeners. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, uh, but so, so, yeah. You get my drift, the drift of the question yeah. is that this is free. Yeah. It's outside the market using a massively successful advertising sphere yeah. to try to get at something ideologically no, I, that yeah. seems partially worthwhile. Yeah, no, and, no, and I completely get that. And, and in some ways, yeah, it, it's it's one of the choices that we have to make all the time. In that, uh, you know, I'm I'm I embrace real politics all the time. You make compromises all the time because you, know, you, if you can't change the world you live in. You have to compromise with it continually. And yeah, no, I think actually that's probably if, if advertising, you know, that they're still going to do it. They don't want to not do it because you didn't help them. And if they do it in a way that has positive ideological benefits in other spheres, it's not going to affect the sphere of economics and consumption because they will still be committed to that. But it could affect other spheres. So, so consequently, you know, lots of people have worked, uh, you know, have, have been very active in the whole area of gender stereotyping and advertising. And, you know, that's an incredibly worthwhile thing to do because advertising is so dominant. And if you can tackle it there, 
that's probably the first place you should try and tackle it because advertising is so influential. So, you know, is that a worthwhile ideological effort? Yeah, of course it is. So, yeah, so I modify it. Let me correct my previous answer. Now, I do think that's a useful thing to do. Um, and, and perhaps I'm wrong to be so squeamish about saying, get the gone, <laughs> advertiser. Uh, you know, because I think we have to acknowledge it is a huge cultural industry and a lot of, you know, good people work in it. A lot of smart people, clever people, bright people, as committed to all sorts of, of you know, um, altruistic moral values working it. It's, you know, it's so huge. How could it be otherwise? You use the word altruistic there. And, of course, that is part of the discourse of economics, even neoclassical. And it does apply to things like volunteering, as well as all other kinds of activity that are, in some sense, outside the market. Not in terms of efficiency, or effectiveness, other than when understood as far as the psychological happiness of individuals is concerned. So altruism is long-standing part of the discourse, it seems to me. They acknowledge, neoclassical economists, that that's in people. Their problem, essentially, comes from how to understand it, because they want understanding to have monetary value. Yes. The form of understanding yeah. that engages effectively for them in exchanging the quality of X versus Y is going to be via a monetary symbol. I'm not speaking in very clear terms, but no, 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 perhaps you mean. could explain better than I just did. Yeah, and, and, and there is that sense in which you know, everything at some point in classical economics has to be reduced to a kind of cost-benefit analysis with the emphasis being on the cost. I, you have to be able to enumerate it in some form. Otherwise, the forms of evaluation that economics deals in can't cope. But one of so the things don't have a monetary value, then you know, what's economics to do? Um, what, what I find really bizarre mm. is the degree to which uh, economics as a discipline is increasingly used in order to understand human psychology, which seems bizarre to me because if, right. if economics has a blind spot, it is human psychology because it, it doesn't even acknowledge any complexity to us, you know, the, the complexity of human subjects in economics is, I mean, it's not, it's not simply not there. But We're it seems complex. to me... We that, behave in very unidirectional, that, simplistic that, ways. There is a two-way exchange there. Psychologists are jumping on the bandwagon with economists. Yeah, yeah, economists right. acknowledge psychologists have things to tell them. My problem with them is that they won't acknowledge that anthropologists and sociologists yeah. have things to tell them. No, indeed. Or, or some psychologists. I mean, so there are some psychologists that, you know, have, have written eloquently about, for example... Uh, the fact that um, you know too much choice can make you miserable, um, mm. you know, that, right. uh, and some quite interesting experiments that they've done that show that actually choice leads to dissatisfaction in, in certain contexts, which for an economist is a huge problem. And what do you mm. do with that? You know, where does that fit in your model? It doesn't fit. Um, similarly, the idea that uh, goods will have a decreasing value. Uh, and in fact, their value may reach a point, well, what economists would call zero marginal utility. Mm. Um, you know, they can't conceive of that moment. It's always, it always has to have some utility. Um, you know, but if it has, no, it has no impact on your quality of life, well, you know, where does that fit? Where does that fit? Um, well, you've given us an extraordinary tour of contemporary debates in this area, and you've barely touched on the topic that you've said is in some ways your area of greatest expertise, namely the media. Yeah. In the time left to us yes. okay. by the podcast, can you tell us, allowing for jurisdictional differences between countries, for example, and within them, what might be done to make the media urge upon us a more imaginative set of options than we currently possess? Okay, okay. I'll, I'll try and be quick uh, here. I mean, the first I've already alluded to, which is, the realm of advertising. Mm. I think we used to have a culture in some countries that realised that the discourse of advertising was problematic in various ways and, and worked to limit it. So, you know, the number of ads you could show per broadcast hour is still limited in many countries. Um, I think we need to think more seriously about that, about essentially thinking about how you can fund cultural production by something other than advertising. We need to take advertising seriously as a political discourse. Uh, and acknowledge that it is a political discourse, that it has something to say about global capitalism, which is not balanced. Um, I remember what, sorry, this is a, a, again a slight aside, but I remember watching a documentary by John Pilger, 
uh, which was being shown on ITV, which is the major commercial channel in, in the UK. Uh, and Pilcher's documentary was, in a sense, a critique of uh, global capitalism and the role that large corporations play in that. But it was shown on ITV, so every 15 minutes there were ads. And I remember seeing one of the ads, it was for an ad for Peugeot. And it was a, it was a beautifully constructed ad. Uh, but the premise of the ad, I didn't tell anything about the car Peugeot, but the premise of the ad was to associate the car with everything that is uplifting, uh, with notions of equality, uh, with the profundity of, of human experience. Um, it was a very egalitarian moral ad. Um, had nothing to say about the car. But what it did do was negate everything Pilger had just told us about the way that large corporations operate. So Pilger was saying these large corporations operate in a way that is rapacious, that is selfish, and that is not responsive to human need around the world. The ad said, this large corporation stands for every moral value that you stand for. So the ad was politically working against what the program was doing. So I mean, ads in that sense are deeply political and we have to, if you like, we have to realize that we have to balance them with something else or we have to limit the amount of space they get. That's one thing we have to do. The other thing uh, I think we need to do is, is first of all acknowledge that the media and creative industries, the media and communications industries are in the vanguard of, uh, and you have written about this with Rick Maxwell uh, at great length, Toby, uh, in your book, Green in the Media, if we could give that a little plug. Uh, but in that book, you talk about the way in which the media themselves are often seen as this kind of green virtual industry that has no carbon footprint, but in fact, uh, are um, you know, they are as heavily dependent upon kind of heavy industry and uh, you know, polluting the ground, the water and the air uh, as, as aviation is. Um, but, but more than any other, I mean, there's two things that distinguish that industry. One is um, uh, the degree to which they're let off the hook. In other words, we don't, you know, we, we, we think about you know, flying as being a problem in terms of climate change. We don't think about buying a new TV in that terms. We think about, in fact, we might be sold it on the idea that it's somehow greener than our old TV, although invariably usually isn't. Uh, but this is an industry that is in the vanguard, as you and Rick say, of built-in obsolescence as a model. You know, so Apple will have a business model that for every new thing they produce, they are working away very hard to make sure that that thing they've just produced will be obsolete within 18 months to two years. Yeah, the, the, our creative industries are fantastically good at built-in obsessions. They have become geniuses, actually. I mean, you think about the longevity now of uh, the objects that we currently use. I mean, phones used to last a decade. They now last a year to 18 months. You know, televisions, televisions used to last a decade. Again, if you were paying attention, you would have changed your television about four times in the last uh, decade. In fact, you know, the, the programs on TV now have a longevity that TVs themselves don't, mm -hmm. technology doesn't mm -hmm. have. Um, you know, my daughter's favourite show, one of her favourite shows, is the show Friends. This was a show that was first broadcast before she was born uh, and stopped broadcasting, you know, how many years ago was it now? A long time ago. It's her favourite show. It still survives on television, but it's, you know, the objects through which she's watching it are, you know, transformed many generations since it was first broadcast. But, yeah, we're still watching it. So, it, you know, it's, uh, and that's because the industry has become incredibly successful at telling us uh, that uh, we need to constantly upgrade. You know, every upgrade is, is actually less innovative than the previous one. I mean, Windows 8, for example, I was talking to somebody who knows far more about this than I do, and they were saying how terrible Windows 8 was and how, you know, how Windows 7 was a much better product than Windows 8. So these upgrades are no longer necessarily upgrading, but for a long time that's been the case. And what's important about the upgrade in this industry is that it's different, that it persuades us to buy yet another object. Now, one of the things that I talk about, and you talk about the environmental effects of that in great length, but it also has an ideological effect. And the ideological effect is that what it does is create in our minds, because this is an industry that dominates our consciousness like no other, is it creates in our minds the idea that progress is inextricably bound up with the constant and rapid replacements of objects. So, you know, the idea that we have to replace our computer or our phone every two years, mm. that's what progress is. Mm. So mm. we've defined mm. progress not through whether our, you know, whether our lives have become more meaningful or happier or any of those things. 
that's not how we define progress. We define progress simply through constant upgrade. So it's, it's a, the apotheosis of a consumer capitalist model. And this is an industry that has embraced that and its very form of production ideologically uh, creates that idea in our mind, solidifies that idea in our mind. So I think one of the things that we need to do is think of other ways of constructing things economically that work the other way. I mean, you talk in your book about how you know, one of the central figures in this whole process is the accountant, you know, what the accountant you know, actually counts, what they don't count. And currently now the accountants only tend to count things that work in a very, very narrow frame around you know, making their business profitable. If they counted you know, the environmental impact of what they did and what it cost to clean up their production, what it cost to clean up what happens at the place of consumption, what it costs to offset uh, the transport of getting things from production to consumption, if they had to factor all that in, it would be a very different set of calculations. So if, for example, we had to pay for the actual cost of an object, so you know, we had to no longer expect, because currently we, we publicly subsidise all that, so you know, the, the corporations produce what they do, create environmental impacts, and they expect public bodies to pick all that up. So, you know, in, in poorer municipalities around the world, the World Bank have calculated that for many of those municipalities, now they're spending huge proportions of their budgets on just dealing with waste. So it's, you know, 30 to 50% of their budget. Mm -hmm. That's money they can't spend on education or healthcare or any mm -hmm. of those other things. Mm -hmm. Just dealing with this problem. So we're subsidising it. Now, if we said we're not going to subsidise that anymore, we expect that to be paid for, uh, you know, by the people producing it or, at, you know, by the consumers and producers alike. And we said, we're going to subsidise something quite different. What we're going to subsidise is people whose job it is to fix things. Mm. You know, they're a dying group of people now. You know, there are no longer shops on the corner that fix your electronic gadgets in the way they used to be. But if we actually subsidise that, so that it became more expensive to buy something, but much cheaper to fix it, you could create a very different mentality. You created a very different set of economic imperatives that actually made the idea of making something more sustainable, that making something upgradable, so you didn't have to dump it and get a new one, you could just upgrade it or improve it. Then ideologically, uh, we might begin to think much more about why we're doing all that, uh, rather than become obsessed with the very process of replacement and, and, and so forth. So for me, that would be another huge uh, shift. And there are lots of magic ways I think we can think about doing that. Um, the third thing I think we need to, and the third area that I talk about in the book is journalism. Um, I mean, journalism, amazingly, you know, journalism has been a, a, a commercial business for, for, you know, hundreds of years now. And amazingly, journalism clings on to the idea that journalism is still about making the world a more democratic place. It's still about, you know, speaking truth to power, calling you know, powerful people to account, questioning conventional wisdom. Calling Mr Lewis to the accounts department. Indeed. Uh, all of those things. Uh, yeah, we, we still cling on to the idea, despite its commercialisation, and, and which is remarkable, I think. But one of the things for me that I think was a, a very important moment in the history of journalism, and it happened a long time ago, was the moment when journalism uh, realised that its most profitable business model, once news became a commodity, was to make sure you commodified it as rapidly as possible so that it became, uh, it had a high level of built-in obsolescence, if you like. I mean, a newspaper is the classic object for that. Here is an object with a built-in obsolescence level of a day. So, you know, it becomes useless within a day and we have to buy a new one. Now, what that, you know, that model has become much worse since 24-hour news where, you know, news becomes old if it's hours old, learn if it's days old. Now, what that does, I think, is work against the more democratic imperative of journalism because it creates a form of discourse that says the value of information is not on whether it allows us to understand something well. The value of information is simply on its ability to replace another piece of information. So, you know, we, we, the very phrase yesterday's news, yesterday's news we use as a form of of uh, disparaging the idea that it's old news. Oh, it's old, therefore it's useless by definition because it's old. The idea that it might have some enduring meaning has you know, disappeared. Uh, a bit so, like old codgers. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> enduring indeed. So 
I guess what we need to do is is, is uh, hold on to the idea that journalism is about uh, questioning conventional wisdom and ask it to do its job. To, to, I mean, what is the most conventional wisdom in, of our age? It is the idea that growth is paramount, that the, the most important news we have to report is economic news and the most important thing that can happen is we have economic growth. That is the undisputed ob objective truth of contemporary journalism. And what I would like to see is contemporary journalism doing what it says on the tin, questioning that conventional wisdom. Uh, at the moment, it doesn't. Um, well, you questioned it very effectively today, Justin Lewis. Can you tell us again the name of the book and maybe tell us the name of the publisher? I can. It's called Beyond Consumer Capitalism, Media and uh, Limits to Imagination, and it's published by Polity. Well, thanks for joining us. I hope you'll come back to the pod when your next thunderous object comes into view. Thank you, Happy days.